Hi, and welcome to Things of Interest. I'm Sophia Prince. And I'm Serena Chen. And this week, we're going to talk about privacy, a something we probably should have started talking about last week, but as you will have heard at great length, it was very hot and neither of our brains worked. <laughs> it's closely related to cryptography and privacy, particularly in the age of the internet, and how we ensure and understand our privacy in the context of technology is something I'm personally really interested in. Um, one of my favorite article that I've ever written has been about sort of privacy in the age of genomics and how, no- how nothing can ever truly be anonymized. So I figure it's something that probably interests a lot of people because we sit in this very strange time where we share a lot of our information online, but we also don't read our terms and conditions. We don't read our end user license agreements. And even if we read those, even if we click yes and move on with those, what are we exactly consenting to when we share our private information? The sort of scandals that have been surrounding the My eHealth, re- the My Health record in Australia, the weaknesses that have been found in the security and encryption of the health records in Queensland quite recently as well. So that's horrifying. Like those are all really scary. And when we consent to having things like our health records, our personal information, our MyGov accounts, which I can literally never remember either my username or password for, when we sign up for those, are we consenting to the risk of security breaches? Are we consenting to the possible leaking of our private information? And now that privacy risks are very real and very sort of tangible to our lives, whereas like, you know, 50 years ago, a privacy risk would be someone not locking the door to the doctor's office where the physical medical files are. Like, I'm I'm curious about this, and I want to start talking about what that means for us as people. I want to start talking about how we can ensure our privacy when computers aren't really private. Like, Serena has a whole YouTube series on keeping your information secure and having secure passwords and doing all the right things. But fundamentally, like, hackers are smarter than me. (laughs) (laughs) It's what I keep coming back to. I'm just like, well, if someone wanted to steal my identity, they probably could. Yep. Mm -hmm. What are my protections surrounding my information and how do I stay safe online, essentially, are the questions I want to ask, which, again... Mm -hmm quite related to our last episode but going off in a different direction hopefully because like there's just so much to privacy and security of information and when we tell when we tell people our data is anonymized either as a scientist or as an individual pursuing that data like that is rife with further questions yes i guess i want to ask you serena to start with Have you heard about the movement in Australia to have, like, online health records for everyone, in big air quotes, but really everyone who hasn't opted out? And what do you think of it? (laughs) I guess I've just heard about it now, so... (laughs) Okay, cool. Yeah, so this was announced last year at some point uh, as something that, as an Australian resident, you had to opt out of, otherwise your medical records would be uploaded to a big, like, shared database... And any doctor could access your health records. Mm-hmm. Which, speaking as someone who has a background in the medical sciences, that includes people who I would both count as my friends and people who I would not trust with that responsibility mm-hmm. <laughs> um, at all. Like, some doctors in the medical profession are terrible people. And also the government, when queried, wasn't really providing 
great answers to questions of data security as well. Essentially, mm-hmm. we had no way to ensure that the data that was put on the centralized online database would be secure. And we had no way to know like that only relevant people would be accessing our data. Right. Um, so a lot of people have opted out of it. Uh, and there's been a lot of discussion surrounding opt-out. And I think the last opt-out date was quite recently. And if you haven't, then cool, your medical records are in the cloud. Yeah, like what are, what is your initial impression then of that? Oh, just, you know, the normal, usual, quiet horror. <laughs> yeah, so there's a couple of things here. Before you mentioned that uh, you were wondering, you know, how do you protect yourself online in a world where everything and everyone is extremely online, you correctly said that if someone had the motivation to to steal your personal data, to um, steal your identity, then they probably could. This is where a thing called um, threat modeling comes in. And in the security industry, threat modeling is just a way to go through a thinking exercise and imagine what are the possible things that could go wrong and what are the likely things that could go wrong and who would likely target you and then to respond in kind against likely threats rather than, you know, every single threat. So for most people, for most people listening to this and for you and I, we don't have to worry too much about like someone specifically going after us and targeting us with enough motivation to actually succeed in getting all of our personal shit. So the things that we can do as, you know, everyday people is to protect ourselves against drive-by attacks. So these are attacks that are not personal. These are just people usually running a script trying to get your passwords and get your personal data. So as long as we do that, then it's all right. Um, if we are someone of uh, of public interest, for example, a celebrity, uh, a journalist, someone who might work in uh, in a sensitive area, who might have access to sensitive data, then it's time to start thinking about more hardcore protections, I guess. So that's to answer that question. In terms of governments putting basically all of their uh, citizens' data in a huge database. I don't know, like, quiet horror is the only word I have for it, especially when that government, specifically the Australian government, doesn't seem to understand, um, how do I say this? Technology. <laughs> 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 yeah, okay. The, uh, the new encryption laws are horrifying, thank you, it's true. Yes, yes. I guess, like, I guess my concern with having health records in a sort of ethereal format, like online, so I have I think all my health records from growing up in New mm. Zealand, like physically, my like childhood healthcare center was like, do you want us to send these to you? Because we don't think you're going to live in Tauranga in the next, you know, 20 mm. years. And I was like, yeah. yeah, sure. Mail them to me. And yes, they accidentally included some of my brother's health files and some stranger. Okay. So I politely emailed them and said, hey, you broke some laws when you sent this to me, but I burned those. So just keep an eye on that, eh? Yeah, just maybe don't do it again next time. Yeah, but like now I'm in the position where if someone breaks into my house and steals my medical files, I will know that that has happened. Mm-hmm. How would I know if that happened online? Yeah, well, you wouldn't, right? That's that's the problem. And in a lot of cases, especially when um, when these huge databases are being built without proper understanding, 
around the technical aspects of it. A lot of the times, the people hosting these databases don't know when they've been broken into either, and that's that's the scariest thing. Well, if they're in the cloud, isn't that part of something that your cloud provider, AWS or Google or Azure, I'm fairly certain from what I've read that your cloud provider is meant to track that. But then again, we have to say, like, yes. in that instance, we trust that the cloud provider will pick it up. And that's just like, yes, it's a lot of trust for my medical files. Whereas it, similarly, like if someone broke into my current doctor's office, hmm. there's like an element of trust in the hacked their computer stuff. But even on computers, doctors write in such a uh, <laughs> incomprehensible jargon. Chicken scratch. Yeah. Shall we say it's all abbreviations like i'm I'm kind of more okay with that than things that are just accessible on a database and the other thing as well right is being like the access isn't restricted to people you've consented to accessing that as your primary care p- providers mm-hmm. it's all medical professionals mm-hmm. and that's yeah quiet yeah. horror <laughs> yeah so you're touching on something that's um, that's really tricky in the age of today is this idea of consent and consent around data and consent around trust and um, the idea of trust networks. So when the Australian government decides to put your medical records um, online onto some kind of cloud provider, the question isn't like, is my data safe in the cloud? The question is, who is the cloud. Who is yeah. hosting this and do we trust them? The Australian government right now is kind of using their their authority to choose whatever, I don't know what cloud provider they're choosing, um, but basically the idea is the populace trusts the Australian government. The Australian government trusts cloud provider X, therefore the population trusts cloud provider X. And where things start breaking down is that that's, those connections aren't necessarily true. Those trust connections aren't necessarily so. That's kind of the tricky thing with especially technology. Because, like, trust has always been a, a tricky problem, even without technology. Like, even you put your money in a bank because you trust the bank. And you're you're giving that bank some kind of your consent to house your money and your implicit trust. And um, where that trust breaks down is if, you know, the bank then trusts some third-party actor and they shouldn't have done that, it doesn't mean that you trust the third-party actor. But, you, you know, so this is this is where yeah. the, the tricky things happen. And it's made even trickier with technology because technology and the way that technology is built is so modular in nature. So when you look at your laptop, when you look at your phone, hundreds and hundreds of different companies have gone into building that one piece of technology. The processor was built by a specific company that only builds processors. Like the the screen was built by a company that only builds screens. The data storage, um, your hard drive, is built by a company that does hard drives. And these aren't necessarily the same company. And so when you when you buy a computer, when you buy a phone, you're saying, I trust, I don't know, um, Dell or Apple or... Uh, Samsung. Samsung or something. Like, I trust this company um, with all of the shit that I'm, all of my own data that I'm going to put on this device. And, like, I, I trust them and I'm going to buy this thing. But what you're saying in that case is that you're trusting Samsung to select trustworthy suppliers. Yeah. So you're saying, like, you trust Samsung's judgment. 
Yes. And that could be all well and good. And like, this is not necessarily a bad thing, right? Because we can't spend all of our day like researching the hundreds of companies that go into each piece of technology and then making hundreds of decisions whether those individual companies are trustworthy or not. We just don't have time for that. So it's delegated trust. We're delegating our trust to X company. And because technology is so modular and there's so so much more um, attack surface for supply chain attacks, it, there's so much more possibility for something like a, a bad actor to get into somewhere in the supply chain. That's when things get really tricky and hard to deal with. And this is why your doctor's office containing all of your handwritten medical records feels like, yes, they could be broken into, and um, yes, they could be acting in bad faith and sell your data elsewhere, but it feels like there's less, there's less different ways for that to go wrong, whereas when you digitize all of your medical records and you put it um, on a cloud service provider, there's a lot of different people, different companies, different suppliers going into making that whole process work. And at any point during the supply chain, one of them could be compromised. So this is where we have to really kind of be careful with technology and to to really use it in a considered way and consider all the risks that will be involved because there are a lot more risks. Yeah, I think an element of what as well is just like, I can see that. Mm. And so inherently it feels safe to me because I can see the protections that are happening around it. Like I can see that it is in a locked drawer in a locked office. Mm -hmm. So during my honours year, I had to access some patient files. And that was literally like I had to ask my supervisor for a key and then go through like two locked doors into a locked drawer to find the patient file that I needed. Mm. Yeah, it was kind of like, okay, like, these are the kind of protections that exist on my files. Like, oh, that's fine then. Yeah. This is this is a lot of protection. I got that. Good. Whereas online, I think, for those of us who aren't really security ex- experts, it's harder to envisage yes. how secure your data is. You're just kind mm-hmm. of like, I don't know, it's, it's on the internet. Like, it's in the cloud. Yeah. Crush your fingers and, like, hope. Right. Yeah, so this is this is the the huge unsolved problem in computer security is how do we communicate how secure a system is to everyday people Uh, and we have to like we can't just we can't just expect everyone to become computer security experts that's unreasonable that's a huge unsolved problem right now it's a it's also worth noting that and this is an idea from the journalist Zainab Tufekci who I think I've mentioned on this podcast before she's written a lot of really really good pieces around technology and social movements um, and privacy and the point that she makes a lot of the time is that we don't live in a world where it makes sense for an individual to give fully informed consent about their data anymore because we have so much data and we well mm-hmm it doesn't make sense because you and this like sort of spirals around to where my expertise lies. Mm. Um, to a large extent, like you can't give fully informed consent because yes. in order to do so requires that you understand the potential outcomes of the thing that you're consenting to. Exactly. And so in situations like sex, that's really easy and straightforward. You can just be like, you know, I consent to this experience and can withdraw my consent at any time. Mm. But when it comes to sharing your data, like 
we don't really know or understand what that means. Like we talked a couple of episodes ago about you going onto YouTube as a new person and like seeing how different your tailored YouTube experience was from like the raw YouTube experience. Mm Mm-hmm. And that's not something you ever knowingly consented to or probably like considered when you were consenting to YouTube collecting your data or Google collecting your data and kind of like tailoring your experience to you. Yeah. And that's for everything. <laughs> and it's not something that I would have even known had I not done that experiment. Yeah, I think I think we generally have a awareness of the fact that our experiences online are tailored i just don't think we're aware of how tailored they are yeah yeah it's it's kind of like and (laughs) i use this analogy a lot but um it's kind of like you know i understand that the moon exists but it isn't what wasn't until i looked through a telescope and saw the moon did i understand deep within my bones that the moon existed god it's so big it's so real and so much a sphere a ball of rock floating in space. Like theoretically, we all understand that our data is being collected by the the companies who own the services that we use. Like we understand that, but it isn't until you see just how personalized um, the things that you see are. It isn't until it's kind of like if you wear glasses for long enough, you kind of forget that they're there. Yeah, and it's it's not until you take them off do do you realize just how different the world really seems yeah or or unintended effects right like um when i walk with my stick like the main thing i notice is i'm in less pain but when i stop i feel really off balance (laughs) and i didn't realize that doing that was going to make me off balance or like Mm. give me keep my stick guns up because i've just got real muscular arms it's great (laughs) um I'm swole, guys. Get shredded. Just FYI. <laughs> and those were like unintended consequences. Like, I didn't want to feel off balance when I stopped using my walking stick, but I did. And that mm. was just a side effect of using my stick. And unfortunately, the kind of side effects of companies collecting our data aren't accidental. They're, in fact, very considered and a very considered attempt to draw us deeper into their web. Exactly. And that's stressful sometimes yes and so this we're getting to um to the real kind of meaty part of the problem if as individuals we cannot by definition cannot give full informed consent to our own individual data because it only makes sense in an aggregated form like our data only makes sense when uh and is is of value when it becomes aggregated and because we can't envision what it might do when it's aggregated we can't give that informed consent so therefore we need some kind of group informed consent some kind of coalition of model of consent in which you know the natural form of that would be okay maybe it's time for governments to step in and legislate around privacy so like we've seen recently with um, europe's gdpr and there's a whole bunch of uh, internet privacy bills going through parliament right now in New Zealand, as we've seen with that, perhaps it's time for governments to step in and say, okay, well, we can speak collectively on the behalf of all people rather than individuals. And we can, we can make hopefully better informed choices. And this is where the the problem lies, right? Is as we've seen in Australia with, uh, with these medical records, government bodies don't always 
fully understand they don't understand tech they don't understand the technology industry and so we're at this impasse where the government is the natural actor to say with you know the authority that we have as representatives elected by the people we're going to make these decisions to protect um to protect our citizens privacy but at the same time we don't know how encryption works so well dang (laughs) And I guess my frustration is that government should be the actor making a lot of these decisions, but they're just ill-equipped at the moment. I mean, should governments be the ones making decisions? Um, not all of them, no. Like, well, even I think about the Australian government mm. and the fact that, like, journalists aren't allowed on Nauru and Manus and... You know, Beruz Bouchani won a Victorian Premier's Award for his book and is still on, I think, Manus Island is where he is. And I think about sort of how the Australian government sucks, acts as a force right now, and it's just kind of like, oh boy, I would not like them to be more in charge of the internet, please. Yes, I feel you. Ah, yikes. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Well, this is the thing, right, is that, like, the idea, theoretically... Is that um, <laughs> that governments work and they they represent the will of the people, and that's not necessarily the case. So, no, government shouldn't be in charge of everything. But like, assuming they're working as intended, they're, they're a natural kind of um, authority. Yeah, and and particularly when it comes to like protecting your data and like just protecting things, right? I guess like I'm suspicious of any situation where majority rule might harm like yes. the minority groups that exist mm. and like find a lot of their existence on the internet, right? Like mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm conscious of how splintered the group in society that I belong to, you know, like as a mm queer disabled person like that is often seen as a faction it's not seen well shall Mm -hmm. we say particularly considering you know that like while being vaguely left-wing like i also work in big business and those are all like interesting tensions for me to have as an individual but if you look at those without the context of like my humanity i'm a risk factor for protests, for, you know, needing a lot from the government, for being outspoken and an agitator, essentially. And while I would gladly be an agitator, I think the approach of many governments is to... Silence. Yeah, dismiss, diminish, Mm. or silence agitators, despite the fact that, like, yeah, I think outspoken minorities are a really important part of guiding our democracy and I say that meaning from all sides like I'm really I have a weird and deep-seated love for the ACT Party (laughs) particularly since they became much less shitty about Maori people there are a couple years there where they were real bad about indigenous people but yeah I have this weird deep love for them because i think it's good to have a libertarian voice that comes in and says like what if we didn't have any taxes what if we just let people into the country because it means that the ruling parties and the parties that are in coalitions have to come up with reasons why we don't do that and it often means that they come up with better things to do as alternatives or more well justified alternatives 
that's really important to have as voices. And so, like, yeah, I worry that any government who has too much power, particularly surrounding places where we've seen this incredible democratization of media like Twitter, this equality of storytelling, this access to splinter communities and this access for disabled people for people who might only have a phone and not a computer for people who don't have access to these things in other ways like that's huge and the idea that someone who can file this under protection might get rid of that kind of horrifies me Mm. and I think it's just because I see those I mean it's because I love free speech or whatever but a lot of it's because Madison and Nauru Islands off the coast of Australia. Like, and if you're not Australian, their tropical gulags is a short story. They were started up at, like under the guise of protection. Mm, mm. Like the idea was that they were protecting the Australian people. This like back door that like all Australian encryption has to have for the government <sighs> is under the guise of like protection yeah. for the Australian people. And yeah. It sounds weird, but, like, I worry about giving governments too much power. <laughs> I don't think it sounds weird at all. I think that's completely and very important and something that we shouldn't ever forget is any kind of concentration of power we have to be really, really careful about because any kind of concentration of power is likely to be abused. How do you feel about unions? And, um, I fucking love unions. Yeah, yeah. God. I was just uh, reminded that, uh, in case you didn't know, New Zealand has a tech union. I do know. Yes. Uh, I think uh, Victoria has been a starting place for um, the Game Workers Union here. I have some friends who have been very involved in that. Pretty exciting. Very good, yeah. So um, if you're in New Zealand and you work in IT, uh, you don't have to be a technical worker. You could be... A designer, an admin person, or you could, you know, be a manager or anyone. But if you work in tech and you might be interested, you should totally check out Aotearoa Tech Union. It is run by some very good people. And yeah, if you're into that, check it out. Just a little, little plug. Little, a little plug. Well deserved plug. Unions do great work. They gave us the five day work week. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. yeah. A couple of weeks ago, a friend posted an article about how, like, working for the big four consulting companies is bad because people work really hard and then they burn out. And sort of in my experience, like, that really hasn't been the case. I've been leaving work at, like, five o'clock pretty solidly for the last couple of weeks now, which I love. And the alternative to that is uh, 5.30. <laughs> I think that's an Australia-New Zealand kind of thing, though. Well, so this was an Australian friend who shared it. And I sort of made the comment, I was like, so firstly, that's not true in my experience, but I only have my experience to speak from. But also, like, the solution to this isn't to not work for a consulting company. The solution, like, it's a structural problem, and the solution is unions. Heck yeah. And everyone was kind of, like, wasn't expecting that and didn't really know how to deal with it. And they were like, well, what about for, like, junior lawyers that have to work really hard? I'm like, they should also have a union. So there is a junior, uh, there is a lawyer's union that is... So I don't have as much information about this, but one of my friends is uh, on is starting it up with um, with some colleagues. Yeah, I feel like the the functioning of any country is just trying to balance everyone's needs with like 
you know, the health of a nation, which is very hard to approach. Mm-hmm. And I think that unions are a very important part of that balance. Extremely, yeah. Not necessarily, like, against government, but more to, like, shift the route in which government is taking. Yes, yes. But also sometimes against government agencies. Like, the hours that junior doctors work are, like, frankly ludicrous and unsafe for both doctors and patients. So Yes. Yeah, well, I mean, a big failing of government is that there's no democratic governments. And I feel like this, again, is... <laughs> This is going to require explanation. <laughs> well, yeah, the the idea of a representative democracy is that, you know, you elect people that you trust to represent you and then they represent you. Um, and this kind of the untarnished pure idea of that is that their only incentive is to represent you. But in the real world, there's there's a whole lot of other incentives that, that start pushing and pulling on our representatives when they get into into this, their governing body, uh, whether that be lobbyists, whether that be just money from private interests whether that be your family your family sure yeah like Mm. there's a lot of different competing incentives and interests and that starts breaking down their role as representatives not only that but like we don't a lot of democracies in in air quotes in the world aren't directly representational democracies Uh, for example we have things called parties, and that by nature means that you won't get a perfectly representative uh, governing body. In the US, oh, that's even more fucked up. They've got things like the Electoral College, which is stupid, <laughs> for lack of a better word. And I mean, yeah. the counterbalance to that are things like referendums, right? Yes. It's like, sometimes governments are like, ah, oh, shit, we're not doing great at being representative here. We'd better just let the country decide. So... That is a double-edged sword as well, as we've seen in Brexit. The the referendum that was, it was about giving the middle finger to government. Recently, I read a really, really great long-form article around the kind of cultural vibe and feelings behind Brexit and, and how it came to be. And I learned a lot from that article. Uh, to summarize, it was, they were basically saying that the wealth inequality had been steadily getting worse and worse and worse in Britain for for quite a number of years, and people were fed up, and they were sick of it. And that one referendum was their one chance to speak out against the, the powers that be. And so naturally, people didn't really pay too much attention to uh, to the consequences and to like what the actual vote was about, because it wasn't really about Britain leaving. It wasn't about Brexit, it was about the British government. Exactly, exactly. And so this is where referendums can be a double-edged sword, is that when, and it all comes down to like, it's really hard to communicate ideas and get consensus with large groups of people. And that's just an ongoing challenge. I guess as well, right? Like if you want to be a good government, everyone should be slightly unhappy. Um, explain in the sense that like if no one's happy then you're not like making any one group like do better than the others and if people aren't drastically unhappy then you're doing okay right and so like you know the the ideal government is everyone's a bit happy but a good government would be like everyone's slightly unhappy with what you're doing like everyone has something that you've done where they're just like "Mm, not sure about this so like us with labor we're just like 
maybe they shouldn't have increased funding to prisons. That sounds like a bad thing. Mm -hmm. That seems like maybe it's not doing actual rehabilitative justice. But then other stuff they've done, we really like. And so it kind of balances out to, like, neutral or slightly unhappy. (laughs) A little bit suspicious. Constant vigilance. How do you feel about MyGov as a privacy thing? Um, what is MyGov? You know, there's a little online thing where they give you a code and you can sign in and you can do your tax. Oh, okay. You can get letters from the IRD online. Oh, so it's kind of like um, RealMe in New Zealand? I think so. Yeah, I might just be using the Australian word for exactly the same thing in New Zealand. Um, yeah. So, like, pros and cons, right? It's really important for governments all over the world to to start using technology and embracing it because it can be a great equalizer. You know, not everyone has the a spare three hours in their day to travel to their local IRD office and like file their taxes and do all of that. So making sure that we've got those services accessible remotely through the internet, that's that's really important. The downside, the con, again, um, governments don't seem to understand technology. Um, and what usually ends up happening is that, you know, a government body will advertise contracts to two different tech shops. And the tech shops that win those contracts aren't necessarily necessarily incentivized enough to do a good job. This sounds really harsh, but it's it's true. Like, the, the incentives aren't quite there because there isn't a lot of money in government. Like, they don't have as much resource. They're on tight budgets. They don't want to look like they're just throwing money around and wasting their constituents' tax dollars. So they only have so much budget to spare, and they can only hire a certain caliber of tech shop, and they can only do so much. What ends up happening is that the technical government properties are usually not great, with the one exception, surprisingly, being um, gov.uk, which is really good, and kind of the, I would say, the the inspo for a lot of other government websites. So, like, it can be done well, but it's just really difficult when you're on such a tight budget, tight time, you've got so many eyes on you, and when you don't have that technical expertise within government, which we desperately need. Yeah, and I mean, like, we, we see this a lot with... um genetics and stuff as well right like the rules surrounding gmos Mm. don't make any sense and don't really protect anyone even if Mm. you were to say like gmos are dangerous the way that those laws are written don't work (laughs) yeah and so that's very very frustrating like as a geneticist to have these incredibly restrictive laws when you're trying to you know, make plants that don't need to be sprayed with pesticides in order to grow and not be eaten by bugs. To have government rules surrounding the labeling of that and the treatment of those plants. So um, I don't think it's required anymore, but it used to be that if you were like working with GMO plants, you had to be in a full-on hazmat suit, even if nothing in that plant was dangerous to humans. That's kind of hilarious. Um, that's... Yeah, and it's not great for optics. No. Like, the optics of that, not good. Particularly when it's just like, there's stuff on the roots of this plant that kill weeds. Now I have to wear a hazmat suit. Like, there's also that in walnut trees, but don't have to wear hazmat suits when I go out and hang out near a walnut tree, you know? Anyway. When we consent to sharing our data 
on an online or a technical manner, do you think any element of that consent is consenting to the potential of security breaches? Yes. Okay. Do you think people are cognizant of that? <laughs> if not all of it. No, no. People aren't cognizant of it at all. Because, again, this is like a, a trust thing, right? Like, I'm consenting that X company can access my data because I trust X company to be responsible with it. Um, well, that's the idea of it. In reality, it's more like, okay, I consent X company to get access to my data because I want the services of X company. And the trust thing, well, that comes later. And like this is the kind of disconnect between how trust works between humans and how trust works uh, between machines. Because between humans, trust is a thing that is built up over time. Trust is a thing that is gradual, and the sharing of personal information is something that gradually happens. When you make a new friend, you don't tell them your life story. You, you know, you start with small talk, and then you work your way from there. And as time goes on, your trust in each other builds, and you have more access to, to each other's personal details. But with computers, it doesn't quite work that way. In computers, you have to kind of give that trust up front and to give, uh, to consent that access to your data up front. And that's not how humans work. So that's where the disconnect becomes a real problem. When I go, oh, everyone's on Snapchat and I really want to try out Snapchat because it looks fun. I don't know anything about Snapchat. I don't know if I trust them. If you ask me, like, do you trust Snapchat? I can't give you an answer because I don't, I haven't interacted with Snapchat, the company. I haven't interacted with their services and I don't know. And in a human way, it would be, oh, Snapchat can have a very small amount of access to my data and then we can build that trust over time. But with technology and how these programs work is I'm going to hand over all of my data and just cross my fingers and hope that you're not going to sell it somewhere else. And so, no, I don't think people are cognizant of the fact that when they click accept on terms and conditions, they are like really handing over that, that trust to that company. And whether that company goes off and sells your data on the dark web whether that company is negligent in their security practices and will later be hacked down the line, I mean, we don't know. And yeah, that's a huge problem. Sorry, really sad no, things. No, it's interesting. <laughs> I'm like, I'm just, I'm getting more and more mm -hmm. sure of this idea that when it comes to being online and our data online, there's no possible way to consent to that. Informed consent. Yeah, no, you're right. And that's the whole idea that um, that Zeynep Tufekci has been talking about, is that there is no way for us as individuals to give informed consent. Now, she talks about it in from the perspective that because the data is aggregated and we can't understand what... What are the ramifications of aggregation? But I guess where I'm coming from is the fact that the the design of these technical systems, of these computers, of uh, of how we express consent, how we express trust, is flawed. And 
completely different to how humans every day understand trust. So yeah, you're right. There is no way for us to to truly give informed consent. That's horrifying. <laughs> cool episode, Serena. Yeah, yeah. Well, this is just like every other episode, right? <laughs> yeah. No. Last I know. time we were talking about climate change, it's like, oh god, it's one horror after the other. Yeah. Well, it's the world we live in. <laughs> I mean, the optimistic way of looking at that would be to say, well, that's one opportunity after another, and we've got, we've got a lot of work to do. We've got a lot of lot of shit to fix, and we've got a lot to work on. Yeah, definitely one of the things that sort of happened since since I started working more in the tech space is I now spend more time over terms and conditions for anything new I sign up to. Mm-hmm. Is that I'll read through it and just be like, okay, like what am I covered for here? Like what are my rights actually here? And that's that's a weirdly difficult habit to get into because <laughs> they're so boring. They're so boring. But that's been kind of nice. Mm-hmm. Equally, though, like I think a lot of terms and conditions are worded in purposefully obfuscating ways in that mm-hmm. Facebook doesn't want us to know what's sharing data with Cambridge Analytica, for example. And so it just says third parties. Or that they're buying third-party data. Yeah, it's just third parties. It's third parties. You don't know who they are. It's just third parties. To improve your experience. The thing that gets me about Facebook is not that they're they're collecting our data and sharing it with third parties. It's that they're also buying our data from third parties. Like, they're not happy with the amount of personal data they already have. <laughs> How ridiculous is that? That's so wild. They're going out and purchasing user data to form a more complete image of um of who we are like that's just creepy have you used DuckDuckGo? DuckDuckGo, yeah yeah it's um it's my default search engine okay is it good uh it is functional it is less good than google in that Sometimes it won't for for things like um autocorrecting or like really vague search terms, it won't be as good just because they don't have like the massive amounts of data that Google does, but it does the job like i don't I think I only need to switch over to google if i'm if I'm searching something extremely vague, but yeah, no totally totally recommend oh, wow it. um I just added the uh the duck duck go extension to Chrome, and mm-hmm. it's got a lot of information on it that's really cool, and it's it's worded very excessively. Yes, they're very good. And they're very transparent about how they make money, which is okay, nice. Okay, cool. I might start using that a bit more then. I wanted to check it with you before I, <laughs> I did any of this. You're like, you're my tech reference. <laughs> Happy to be. How do you feel about privacy in general? And like after this conversation, what other things that you would be doing differently moving forward? Look, I think I think privacy is hugely important. So coming from a medical science background, where I've never really worked in genomics, but I know quite a few people who have, so genomics mm. being the study of the full genome sequence, we treat removing name and location information off a genome as being sufficient to anonymize it, and it's not. Most genomes can be quite successfully de-anonymized, and that's largely because there are 
online databases where people have uploaded their own genomes and there are publicly accessible databases where people have been giving their consent to say like yeah sure like i'm okay with my genome being online and that's fine like that's there is very little information in your genome that can be used to harm you currently and that's it right like broadly so coming from a medical sciences background firstly one of the opinion that again we have difficulty with informed consent like i don't think anyone can give truly informed consent to having their genome sequenced simply because it's that what are the possible outcomes question and even scientists don't know what the possible outcomes of you having your genome sequenced are particularly as in most cases if a new variant is discovered that is then reported on so there's just there's so much information there and there's so mm. many probabilities we're working with that what that information actually means is first confusing and horrible. Oh, science. Um, <laughs> but also just like there are so many possible outcomes it is near impossible to comprehend. Mm. And then you have the problem that there are these quote-unquote anonymized online databases that make our, our information, our data analysis much, much stronger. So they're good from that perspective. But I think we have need to have a much longer conversation about how those aren't anonymized. They're de-identified in the simplest possible way, hmm. but they can be re-identified very readily. And there are groups that have done this, um, you know, sort of as proof of concept, have really quickly re-identified data like found figured out what people's last names and likely hometowns were and as more information is accessible from everyone being extremely online that's only going to get worse and for people who upload their own genomes like i understand that like i understand this really weird desire to know who you are as a person Mm-hmm. to find out like where your families come from what your history is what your genome says about you like genetically should you have sticky earwax who knows <laughs> i was gonna say forever 21 that's not it that's a clothing shop 23 Thank and you. me <laughs> 20 23 and me knows um forever 21 might know uh depends how loyal you are as a customer um but even then like you are necessarily providing information on other people I think that's the other half of that question. And as geneticists, as genomicists, we don't talk about that. Hmm. We talk about the inherent good in people having their genome sequenced, about how it's really important that people let us sequence their genomes, about how we shouldn't have to interrogate any further than this, like, oh, extremely Western approach to, like, how science should work because our goals as scientists are so noble that the fact that this data could be re-identified, that it has the potential to be used for harm, even if we come to it as scientists and be like, oh, no one should be mean about the fact that you have, like, this particular mutation. It doesn't actually mean anything from a medical standpoint. It's only probabilities. Like, there is still the potential for that to be used for harm. Hmm. And that stresses me out, firstly. Yeah. <laughs> and it just seems like bad science, not be having these protracted ethical discussions as geneticists because i don't doubt that these discussions are being had on some level by bioethics people but they're not being had by the scientists that actually do the work i think it's similar to the conversation we had surrounding like the use of crispr on humans where there was a yeah moratorium ostensibly on using crispr on human cell fetal cell lines it's like okay sure 
we managed to make that decision very quickly. But genomics, oh, well, genomics is far too important. Genomics is how we figured everything out. The Human Genome Project was incredible and people can just pay a company to have their genome sequenced now. And it's taken, it took like a couple of years for the FDA or whichever group's in charge of it to turn around to 23andMe and go, you can't tell people that they've got an 80% chance of Alzheimer's. Hmm. You are not a medical facility and you don't put them in touch with genetic counselors. Like you're not allowed to do that. And that's why 23andMe now can be like, oh, looks like you roll your tongue. <laughs> cool. Ooh, sticky earwax. <laughs> You're quite Caucasian. <laughs> I think about privacy a lot in that context. And mm. I think about it that much because no one else, it seems to be, is thinking about it that way. Especially mm. not in Australia. Uh, in New Zealand, we have kind of different discussions because with different iwi they'll want different things with their genomes. So some of them, they're like, after you've done this research, like we want you to delete our genome. Mm -hmm. And so we sort of have to be conscious of that in a very respectful manner. And that, I suspect, is because bioethics committees have to have a local EU representative on them, but also because of, like, you know, our cultural differences, right? New Mm -hmm. Zealanders, even if they're shitty and Don brash, are brought up with this idea that they respect local people's beliefs, that... Mm. You know, if you're going to be doing genetic research, you get the consent and the input of the community that you're doing genetic research on. Mm. I think particularly in medical genetics over here, like, that doesn't exist because we're like, oh, we're saving lives. Right, yeah. But that's not a free pass. No, it's not. Yeah. And it's it's stuff like, um, I know of cases in New Zealand where we've had samples from a child who's died while we're trying to figure out the causative gene that's why this child died. And once we figured that out, we had to take the samples back to where this child was buried and bury them with her. Because mm-hmm. that was a cultural belief that like her iwi said when they gave when they consented to give us the samples, they were like, you have to come back and bury this with her. And the people involved were like, yeah, sounds good. Mm-hmm. Totally understandable. We are so grateful that you are letting us take these samples from your dead baby. Like, mm. holy shit, that's intense. Thank you so much. I have never heard of anything similar being done in Australia. That's not to say it doesn't happen. It might very well occur. I just haven't come across it. Yeah. Man, that's heavy shit. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. My perspective on health privacy is, like, sort of both that I don't want my files to be online, mm. but also the concern that the responsibilities that we have as, you know, medical and PhDs in the medical sciences aren't being delivered on. And we're not really respecting the people that allow us to do this really important research because we're not saying things to them. We're not giving them the option of fully informed consent and we're not giving them the opportunity for piecewise consent. So um, piecewise consent, I sort of mean like if you consent to have your genome sequenced as part of a study, Hmm. I think the best way to achieve that is to say like, do you consent to it being used for the goals of the study? Do you consent to this being used for studies that arise out of this study? Yeah. Do you consent to this being used as, like, you know, a control on other studies? And, you know, like, do you consent to this being used for as-yet undetermined purposes? Mm-hmm. I think that kind of piecewise consent gives people a much clearer view of what their information, the genetic data, their samples will be used for. Mm-hmm. And also, like, along with that, there can be the emphasis that consent can be withdrawn at any time and for any reason. Yes. I say this as a scientist who probably would have cried 
had one of the people that lay or families that my patient cell lines were from had withdrawn their consent because it would have been very, very stressful. (laughs) But I also say that as someone who, as a student, read their medical files and so have a context of like what those families are going through. And, you know, I work typically on childhood disorders, really severe childhood disorders has been sort of all the research I've done. Cool life. Very draining sometimes. And that's just heartbreaking. And I don't see how you can be a medical researcher and not want to firstly save people's lives. Like that's really, really important, but also to treat families that have suffered enough with the respect they deserve. And I think to not give them that full context of consent, to not support them in withdrawing their consent at any time, to not just be bluntly honest about the fact that like, yeah, we're going to de-identify your genome, but you should know that these risks are involved. Like, that's a huge problem. And frankly, it's unethical to my mind. Mm. Now it's my turn to make the podcast depressing. <laughs> Yay! We should uh, we should rename the podcast to Things of Sadness. <laughs> Perhaps we should talk about something that was nice next time. Oh, gosh. I don't know. What is, yes. what is good? What is good in the world? Well, I mean, the deeper question, Serena, is what is good? What's good? All right, that's been Things of Interest. We have talked about privacy. We've had more talks about internet security. We've talked about what the purpose of government is and also just medical ethics. In summary, it's been a real depressing episode and I think we're both very sorry about that. (laughs) But informative. Hmm. Depressing but informative. And interesting. That could be our new tagline. (laughs) As always, if you liked this episode, well, firstly, I'm so sorry. Uh, Secondly... (laughs) Please leave us a review on iTunes or your podcast episode listener of choice. Give us some stars. Tell us what you think. Tell a friend. Like, we don't advertise. We often forget to tell our own friends about this podcast. Whoops. So, yeah. Usually I bring it up as a, you know, I moved to Melbourne and a podcast just kind of (laughs) happened. But, yeah, like, tell a friend. Talk about it. Share some tidbits that you learned to horrify and distress people in your life, too. And get in touch with us. We're on Twitter. We're Casting Interests. We're on Facebook at Things of Interest. And you can email us at castinginterests at gmail.com. I've been Sophia Friends. And I'm Serena Chen. And as always, stay interesting.